Part three, chapter two of Riceman's Steps by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. After breakfast. By chance, Violet went down into the shop just after the first post delivery and just before Henry came. She was always later in the shop on Monday mornings than on other mornings because on that day she prepared the breakfast herself and also attended personally to other little matters, as she called them. Henry had already been into the shop for such blinds as there were had been drawn up and he had replenished the bookstand, but too soon for the letters. She noticed the accumulation of dirt in the shop, very gradual but resistless. Although the two women cleaned the shop, and indeed the whole establishment, section by section, with the most regular periodicity, they could not get over the surface fast enough to cope with the unceasing deposit of dirt, and they could not cope at all with, for instance, the grime on the ceiling. To brush the ceiling made it worse. In Henry's eyes, however, the shop was as clean as on the wedding night, and he was as content with it as then. He deprecated his wife's lamentations about its condition. Certainly no one could deny that it still was cleaner than before her advent, and anyhow he could never again have tolerated another vacuum cleaning with its absurd costliness. He knew the limits of his capacity for suffering. Violet unlocked the door and let in the morn and shivered at the tonic. This act of opening the shop door, though having picked up the milk she at once closed the door again, seemed to mark another stage in the process which Elsie had begun more than two hours earlier. It broke the spell of night by letting in not only the morn but dailiness. She gathered the envelopes together from the floor and noticed one with a halfpenny stamp which she immediately opened, furtively. Yes, it was the gas bill for the September quarter, the quarter which ought to be the lightest of the year, and was not. She deciphered the dread total. It affected her like an accusation of crime, like an impeachment for treason. She felt guilty, Yet she had done her utmost to keep the gas down. What would Henry say? She dared not let him see it. And the electricity bill to follow it in a few days. Unquestionably Elsie was wasteful. They were all alike, servants were, and even Elsie was not an exception. At that moment Henry limped down the stairs. Violet hid the bill and envelope in the pocket of her pinafore apron. "'Here are the letters,' she said, seizing the little milk-can and moving forward to meet him. "'Just put a match to the stove, will you? I'm late.' She went on towards the stairs. "'We surely shan't want the stove today.' He stopped her. "'We haven't needed it yet. It's going to be a beautiful day.' She had had the fire laid in the stove more than a week ago, perceiving, with her insight into human nature, that a fire laid is already half-lighted. "'That's all very well for you, for you to talk like that,' she laughed, hiding her disquiet with devilish duplicity under a display of affectionate banter. "'You're going out, but I have to keep shop.' He was dashed. "'Well, you'll see later on. 
I won't light it now, at any rate. You'll see later on. Of course you must use your own judgment, my dear, he added, courteously, judicial, splendidly fair. Elsie, said Violet, peeping into the bathroom on her way upstairs, do you really need that geezer full on all the time? She spoke with nervous exasperation. Well, Mum, I don't know what your master will say when he sees the gas bill that's come in this very moment. I really don't. I daren't show it him. She warningly produced the impeachment. Well, Mum, I must make the water hot. Yes, I know, but please do be as careful as you can. Well, Mum, I've nearly finished. And Elsie dramatically turned off the gas tap of the geezer. The gloomy bathroom was like a tropic, and the heat very damp. Linen hung sodden and heavy along the line. The panes of the open window were obscured by steam. The walls trickled with condensed steam, and Elsie's face and arms were like bedewed beetroot. But to Violet the excessive warmth was very pleasant. "'You didn't have any tea this morning,' said she, for she had noticed that nobody had been into the kitchen before herself. "'No, ma'am, it's no use. If I'm to get through with my work Monday mornings, I can't waste my time getting my tea. And that's all about it, ma'am.' Elsie, her brow puckered, seemed to be actually accusing her mistress of trying to tempt her from the path of virtue. The contract between employers and employed in that house had long since passed, so far as the employed were concerned, far beyond the plane of the commercial. The employers gave twenty pounds a year. The employed gave all her existence, faculties, energy, and gave them with passion, without reserve open or secret, without reason, sublimely. "'It's her affair.' muttered Violet as she mounted to the kitchen to finish preparing breakfast. It's her affair. If she chooses to work two hours on a Monday morning on an empty stomach, I can't help it. And there followed a shamed little thought. It saves the gas. When the breakfast tray was ready, she slipped off her blue apron. At the bedroom door she set the tray down on the floor, and went into the bedroom to put on the mantle which she had already worn that morning as a seamstress in bed. Before taking the tray again, she called out to Elsie, "'Your breakfast's all ready for you, Elsie.' Mr. Earlforward was waiting for her at the dining-room table. He wore his overcoat. In this manner, at his instigation, they proved on chilly mornings that they could ignore the outrageous exactions of cold trusts and striking colliers. "'What's that?' demanded Henry with well-acted indifference as he observed an unusual object on the tray. "'It's a boiled egg. It's for you.' "'But I don't want an egg. I never eat eggs.' "'But I want you to eat this one.' She smiled cajolingly. "'Useless.' She was asking too much. He would not eat it. It'll be wasted if you don't. It might be, but he would not be the one to waste it. He calmly ate his bread and margarine and drank his tea. I do think it's too bad of you, Harry. You're wasting away, she protested in a half-broken voice and added with still more emotion, 
daringly, defiantly. "'And what's the use of a husband who doesn't eat enough, I should like to know?' A fearful silence. Thunder seemed to rumble menacingly round the horizon. Nature itself cowered. Henry blushed slightly, pulling at his beard. Then his voice, quiet, bland, soothing, sweet, inexorable. "'Up to thirty, eat as much as you can. After thirty, as much as you want. After fifty, as little as you can do with.' "'But you aren't fifty. "'No, but I eat as much as I want. "'I'm the only judge of how much I want. "'We're all different. "'My health is quite good. "'You're thinner.' I was getting stout. I prefer you to be a bit stout, much. It's a good sign in a man. Question of taste, he said with a humorous, affectionate glance at her. Oh, Harry, she exclaimed violently, you're a funny man. Then she laughed. The storm had dissipated itself, save in Violet's heart. She knew by instinct, by intuition, beyond any doubt, that Henry deprived himself in order to lessen the cost of housekeeping, and this, although by agreement, she paid half the cost out of her separate income. The fact was, Henry was just as jealous of her income as of his own. She trembled for the future. Then for safety, for relief, she yielded to him in her heart. She trusted. Her hope was in the extraordinary strength of his character. Mr. Earl Forward ate little, but he would seldom hurry over a meal. At breakfast he would drink several cups of tea, each succeeding one weaker and colder than the last, and would dally at some length with each. He was neither idle nor unconscientious about his work. All that could be charged against him was leisureliness and a disinclination to begin. No urgency would quicken him, because he was seriously convinced that he would get through all right. As a rule, his conviction was justified. He did get through all right, and even when he didn't, nothing grave seemed to result. He loved to pick his teeth, even after a meal, which was no meal. One of the graces of the table was a little wine-glass containing toothpicks. He fashioned these instruments himself out of spent matches. He would calmly and reflectively pick his teeth while trains left stations without him and bargains escaped him. Violet, actuated by both duty and desire, would sit with him at meals until he finally nerved himself to the great decision of leaving the table and passing on to the next matter. But as she never picked her teeth before her public, which was himself, she grew openly restive sometimes. Not, however, this morning. No, this morning she would not even say, I know you're never late, dear, but... When they did arrive in the shop, Elsie, having had her breakfast and changed her apron, had already formally opened the establishment and put the bookstand outside in front of the window. The bookstand, it should be mentioned, could now be moved, fully loaded, by one person with ease, for brilliant Violet had had the idea of taking the casters off the back legs of an old armchair and screwing them on to two of the legs of the bookstand, so that you had merely to raise one end of the thing 
and it slid along about as smoothly as a perambulator. Do not despise such achievements of the human brain. Such achievements constituted important events in the domestic history of the T.T. Reisemann firm. This one filled Violet with exultation, Henry with pride in his wife, and Elsie with wondering admiration. Elsie never moved the bookstand without glee in the ingenious effectiveness of the contrivance. Violet, despite the chill, had removed her mantle. She could not possibly wear it in the shop, whatever the temperature, because to do so would be to admit to customers that the shop was cold. Nor would she give an order to light the stove. Nor would she have the stove lighted when the master had gone forth on his ways. After the stifled scene at breakfast, she must act delicately. Moreover, she contemplated a further dangerous, desperate move, which might be prejudiced if she availed herself of Henry's authorization to use her own judgment in regard to the stove. So she acquired warmth by helping Elsie with the cleaning and arranging of the shop for the day. The work was done with rapidity. Customers might now enter without shaming the management. An age had passed since Elsie, preceding the dawn, arose to turn night into day. Looking at it, none could suppose that the shop had ever been sheeted and asleep, or that a little milk-can was but recently squatting at the foot of its locked door. Mysterious magic of a daily ritual, unperceived by the priest and priestesses. Mr. Earlforward was writing out the tail-end of a long bill in the office. He could not use his antique typewriter for bills, because it would not tabulate satisfactorily. He wore his new eyeglasses, memorial of Violet's sole victory over him. She had been forced to make him a present of the eyeglasses, true, but he did wear them. "'My dear,' he summoned her in a rather low voice, and she hastened to him, duster in hand. "'Here's this bill for Mr. Bowersh, a hundred and forty-eight pounds, eighteen shillings.' He blotted the bill with some old blotting-paper, which spread more ink than it absorbed. "'And here's the stamp. I haven't put it on in case there's any hitch. I asked him if he'd mind paying in cash. Of course he's a very big dealer, but you never know with these New Yorkers.' and he's sailing to-morrow, and I've not done any business with him before. He said he wouldn't mind at all. "'I should hope not indeed,' said Violet, who nevertheless was well aware that the master had asked for cash not from any lack of confidence in the great Bowash, but because he had a powerful preference for cash. The sight of a cheque did not rouse Henry's imagination. "'It's all ready.' said Henry, pointing to two full packing-cases in front of his desk. "'But are we to nail them up, or what?' "'I haven't fastened them. He might want to run through them with the bill.' "'Yes,' agreed Violet, who nevertheless was well aware that the master had not fastened them, because he had postponed fastening them till too late. "'He'll take them away in a car, probably have them repacked with his other purchases.' I hear he's bought over twenty thousand pounds worth of stuff in London these last three weeks. Oh, my! And you can put the money in your safe till I get back. 
Henry stood up, took his hat from the top knob of the grandfather's clock, and buttoned his overcoat. He was going to a book auction at Chingby's historic cell rooms in Fetter Lane. For years he had not attended auctions, for he could never leave the shop for the best part of a day. He had to be content with short visits to ragged sub-dealers in Whitechapel and Shoreditch, and with such offers of parcels as came to him uninvited. He always bought cheap, or not at all, but he would sell cheap, with very rare exceptions. If he picked up a first edition worth a pound for two shillings, he would sell it for five shillings. Thus he had acquired a valuable reputation for bargains. He was shrewd enough, shrewder than most, and ready to part with money in exchange for stock. Indeed, his tendency was to overstock his shop. Violet's instinct for tidiness and order had combated this tendency, whose dangers he candidly admitted. He had applied the brake to buying. No longer was the staircase embarrassed with heroic and perfect girls in paper dust jackets. And save in the shop and the office, all floors had been cleared of books. A few hundred volumes, in calculated and admired disorder, still encumbered the ground floor and the lower steps of the staircase to the end explained by the master to his wife on the morrow of the honeymoon. Stock was now getting a little low, and the master went to certain sales with his wife's full encouragement. He was an autocrat, but where is the autocrat who can escape influence? "'Now do take care of yourself, darling,' Violet murmured, almost in a whisper, "'and if you go to that ABC shop, be sure to order some cold beef. "'What does it matter if you do miss a few lots?' "'I'll see.' They parted at the shop door on a note of hard, cheerful indifference. Notes struck, for the sake of the proprieties of a place of business, and utterly false. For Henry loved his wife to worry about him, and Violet's soul was heavy with apprehensions. She saw herself helpless in a situation growing ever more formidable. End of chapter 2